Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health to make a smart decision with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. Um, well, John, I think we have a great show lined up for today. We have some very interesting things, um, as always, timely stuff. Yeah, that's right. We do. And we, we always um, try to do relevant topics. And uh, this is really a good one, Steve. You know, we're no one's perfect with money, right? We've all made mistakes. We have history. Uh, you and I sit down with, with clients all the time and can see some of the issues they've had. So we're going to focus on ways that you can stop passing your bad money habits to your kids or maybe even your grandkids as well. So we're going to go by age by age bracket, give you some uh, suggestions and some solutions on how you can start training your kids and grandkids. Yeah, that's a great because you need got to break that chain of those bad money habits going down to your kids. And then we're going to follow that up with the six tips to a better career. You know, a lot of people change jobs pretty frequently, sometimes too much. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you're considering changing jobs, these are six things that you need to consider before you make a job change to help you get more aligned with the career that you're looking for. And uh, obviously, that's very important to your financial future as well. So uh, stick around for that. That's a great topic. But um, I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro with over 20 years experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I'm also a Dave Ramsey Smart Investor Pro, have an MBA in finance, and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. And we're excited to have you listen to our show this week. Um, our podcasts are up every week on Friday afternoons. Yeah, you can go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link on the right-hand side. Take you to the podcast website. It has uh, some historical podcasts. We have it um, categorized by topics, so you can go in there and check out different topics of interest. Yeah, we make it easy for you. And email us, though, your questions. We'd like to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. Well, we're going to start off here with the financial fact of the week. Oh, we're not talking about the final four? Uh, we ought to. You know, I, I, I forgot. I, I'm sorry. How can it's you so, forget? so easy to forget that the final four includes Carolina. Times two. It, it's hard to believe. North Carolina really, and North, South Carolina. Yeah, you're right. Both South, <clears throat> both South Carolina and North Carolina. My hat's off to them, though. I mean, that is unbelievable that they made it to the final four given. I don't know. Just given their yeah. ranking, their seed, I just, it's just, I just never. And the way they were playing at the end, they lost six of nine ball games at the end of the season, so no wow. one projected it. And wouldn't it be cool? Clemson winning the national title in football. Coastal Carolina won the national title in baseball. And if South Carolina could win the national title, we'd have three national titles in one state. That would be unbelievable. Would I'm, be I'm rooting cool. for them. I am definitely pulling for them. The question is, did you put? South Carolina, your own team in the final four in your bracket. This leads to the financial fact of the week, Mr. Marbert. It does. Give me, give it, give it to it's me. It's easier to win back-to-back mega million lottery than it is to fill out a perfect bracket. So, no, I did not have South Carolina getting past Duke. You didn't even put your own team I, in the I bracket. I did not. I did not have faith. I, I, I announced that on, on to the public. Oh, wow. Well, we're... We're ashamed, but I'm, I'm I've been rooting them every game well, since then. You know, I'm for them too. My hat's <laughs> off to them. It's an incredible start. But you're right, picking a a bracket is kind of like trying to pick stocks, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's an impossible feat. It's an impossible feat. I mean, you think about the odds, and the odds of picking the stock market is the same thing. You know, not quite that bad, but there's like 17 percent of stocks that 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 give the entire positive performance. Mm-hmm. 
for like the last 15 years, the studies show. Yeah, so. and, and if you look over the last 15 years as well, interestingly enough, mutual fund managers who are professional investors, and they've been doing it some on for decades, there's only been 17% that have actually beaten their index over 15 years. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's it's a it's a loser's game. The stats are staggering. It's kind of like picking your bracket in the uh, <laughs> yes, finals in the in the uh, NCAA championship. I'm gonna I'm gonna have them. If I had to repick it, I would say they're gonna beat Gonzaga and then they're gonna lose to North Carolina. That that would be my prediction. So you still point. don't have them going. Oh, come away. on, man! No North Carolina, faith, man! No faith. <laughs> Carolina is going to win. How's that? <laughs> there you go. That's what we want to hear. Leave it open-ended. So we can say, ah, I can't believe you. <laughs> no I'm way. I'm a realist as well, you know. I'm a realist. <laughs> All right. Good financial fact of the week. Okay, that leads us up here to our first topic, and that is how to stop passing these terrible money habits on to your kids. Yeah, right? absolutely. This comes from C- uh, CNBC. And, uh, you know, your children um, may suffer from your financial sins, but they don't have to. I mean, there's some pretty interesting studies that have gone on. People that have declared bankruptcy were more likely to have kids who did not save any money that they got and uh, spend the cash as soon as they receive it versus parents that did not go through bankruptcy. That was a survey that came out from uh, T. Rowe Price. And, and fortunately, if you've made that mistake in the past, you can set your children on a better path by taking some of these steps. So the first one here on the list is is just talk about money. You know, uh, exactly. yeah, I kind of grew up in my family. My, my parents are probably listening to us today. And we, we didn't have a lot of conversations um, about money, but I did learn lessons from them uh, growing up uh, about it. So that's how I got some of my good money habits that they taught me. But, um, you know, so talk to your kids about it. The survey, which polled over a thousand parents of eight to 14 year olds, um, found that people who discuss financial topics with their kids at least once a week were significantly more likely to have kids who say they, they're smart about money. So just discussing it, the numbers were about 64% for the weekly money-talking parents versus 41% for those who didn't discuss the finances. So just having conversations, and we're going to give you some examples associated with that, but just talking about it. Yeah, and they say the conversations don't have to be earth-shattering. You know, I mean, it can be as easy as just talking about how you calculated a tip or what you saved when you were shopping in a sale or explaining, you know, why you didn't go on a bigger vacation this year. I mean, the key is have that conversation with your kids. I don't think my parents, they did talk about money a lot, but it was more about not spending money. Mm-hmm. You know, it was my, my father was very conservative, very frugal with his money. So we had lots of conversations about, you know, how much things cost. Um, so I credit him with, you know, giving me a, a lot of, a, a very high conscious level mm-hmm. about expenses mm-hmm. and, and being conservative, um, but still, we didn't talk a lot about the mechanics of how you save money, and you know what it means down the road, and what it can grow to if you save it versus spending it. And so, um, you you do need to to give your kids that that practice, I think, and and you need to let your kids manage their own money too. You know, kids who have some control over their finances are less likely to spend money as soon as they get it, or expect their parents to buy something for them that they want or maybe feel ashamed that they have less stuff than other children, you know, according to the surveys here. So um, you do need to let your kids experience it at Mm -hmm. their own level and and do that under supervision by the parents. Yeah, that's right. And so whether you give your kids allowances or maybe for, for Christmas or birthday, you know, they have to have some money to practice with. And, uh, you know, parents should definitely begin conversations with, with their children as soon as 
as possible. Um, we see it as early as five and six years old. You know, it's really never too early to, to, to start. I mean, when they start asking about coins and bills in your wallet uh, as a toddler, it's time to, you know, have that conversation about money. Start, you know, when you see their interest in it, um, you know, start that conversation with them. But keep it simple. I mean, kids need to know there's four basic things you, you can do with money. Save it, spend it, invest it, and donate it. And you should really discuss all aspects of that, uh, the, the finance, um, you know, there are tools out there. There's a piggy bank that actually has four chambers. And this one lady, Miss Cox, um, has, has her kids putting money in each one of those and discussing, you know, the priorities associated with each one. So, you know, young kids only see us spending money at the store. So if you don't talk to, to them about, you know, the concepts of money and the different ways that money can be used, then they just think that it's just there to buy stuff. Right, so we have a lot of people in the world that, right. that are running around and they're not thinking about their futures and their retirement. And you know, there are some schools um, that teach their children about personal finance. South Aiken is one of them. You know, we've, yep. we've sponsored some some uh, some money teaching. Dave Ramsey has a foundations material that they're teaching, but really the, the, the teaching should happen at home. I mean, that's where it's going to be more relevant and something that you can, you know, encourage more frequently. That's right. The, real, the reality is you really can't teach financial education to a high level in the classroom. Um, they, they really need to learn it at home. They need to learn by experience. You know, they learn it by doing it and by seeing you do it over time. So parents need to look in the mirror you know, what's the lifestyle that you're leading? Um, what kind of impressions are you leaving with your children? What kind of example are you setting? You know, what kind of things are you doing with them to help them grasp the concepts of managing money, of saving money versus spending it and realizing the results of both of those choices? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't have to go at it alone. There's a lot of, a lot of books and websites, um, sagevestkids.com. I checked that out earlier. It's a, it's a really well-done website. Um, has some really good tips on there. And there's another one by T. Rowe Price. It's called moneyconfidentkids.com as well. Dave Ramsey has material. Generation change is what it's called. So there are, there are resources and material out there to t- help you teach your kids. So we're going to go through different ages here and um, some things that you ought to think about as you look at your, your children as well as your grandchildren as well. Ages three to four, um, you know, you can explain that money is earned by working and that it's used to buy things. So very simple concept. If you work, you get paid. If you don't work, then you don't get paid, right? Exactly. Um, also, when you're, when you're out shopping, be careful with the credit card if you do use that because they don't view that as real money. So use cash. Uh, it'll teach them, um, you know, the difference between nickels and dimes and quarters and bills. At that age, they can comprehend that. So age three to four, keep it very, very simple. As they get a little bit older, uh, five to seven, maybe practice counting and exchanging money when you go to the store and at home uh, during play. So you're having them interact with money a little bit and you're having conversations with them. Maybe when you go to the store, you can do some exercises. When you buy a loaf of bread, how much money does it cost and help them calculate that. So five to seven, you can start, you know, the, the actual touching the money and, and uh, you know, understanding and doing some calculations. Age eight to 10, you can perform small jobs that you can learn the value of earning money, right? So they're yep. starting to, to relate. You know, if you work, then there's some pay associated with it. Um, it helps them to assume greater financial responsibility. Uh, start looking at long-term goals. We, we did something very simple, and this is a Dave Ramsey-type um, recommendation, is have three envelopes, one for giving, 
ten percent, one for saving, fifteen percent for retirement, and then the third one, which is seventy five percent, can be spent on anything that you want to. So very simple concept. If if Americans did that, adult Americans did that, um, we wouldn't have as many problems as we do financially in this in this uh, country. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a great example. And and then the kids get a little bit older. Let's say age eleven to thirteen. Then you can help them start developing some budget skills, right? You can start planning for the long-term spending and savings goals, setting up reasonable spending and savings goals, maybe some small savings goals for something kind of short-term, maybe something that they can do in six months, you Mm -hmm. know, save for or a year, save for. And learn the importance of giving to others, too. I think that's a good age in the early early uh, teens there, um, 11 to 13, where they can start learning what it's like to actually give money to Mm -hmm, others mm -hmm. and help other people. And then 14 to 16, that's where you can really start to let them manage uh, some of their own finances and making financial decisions, making some mistakes with money, such as maybe maybe annual clothing purchase, maybe give them a clothing allowance Mm -hmm. and let them buy their own clothes within reason. Um, you know, learn to plan and save and budget from a personal earnings and allowance standpoint and let them manage their their own allowance or their own earnings, if you will. I like earnings more than I do allowance. Yeah, always, right, right. We always let our, made our kids do work. Sure. We, we, we yeah. let them associate work with money mm-hmm. and not, not just give them an allowance. I don't really believe in allowances. Right. Um, but, you know, you can set up tasks around the house that they can do. You know, an infinite number. Yeah, of earnings is a better word. It, it, it really shows is. work. It does, and then engage in a discussion about college uh, in the the mid-teen area, um, including financial expectations and saving requirements for college, and how how they get there, how they accomplish those goals of having enough money by the time they go, and where's the money going to come from from college, so they don't have this. This either unreasonable expectation or this black hole where they worry about, you know, how to fund college. You ought to have those discussions with them when they're in their mid-teens. Yeah, and no, I agree. And then 17 to 18, you know, they should be working, maybe uh, part-time volunteering. You know, that builds self-esteem, confidence, experience. Um, you know, maybe they can start aligning their their uh, skills with their career paths. But, you know, some of the things that, that I know both of us have done is the envelope system, but we've also let our kids manage their money um, that we were going to spend on them anyway. So the clothing is a great example. So if we were going to spend, you know, $200 a year on clothing for them, we would give that to them and let them manage that. And so you can help as they make mistakes because they will make mistakes. They don't have the experience, but it's better to make it with $200 than it is with $20,000, right? Absolutely. So, um, so make sure you, you know, you spend time with your kids, a lot of resources out there. If you have questions, um, about a specific situation, you can certainly give us a call or, or email us as well. Yep. All right, great topic. And that leads us up here to our question of the week. Social Security question. Social Security seems really easy, Steve, but it's not. It's very uh, complicated, a lot of details. And this question is, should I take Social Security at 66, which is the full retirement age for a lot of folks, or should I wait until age 70? And it really is dependent on the individual situation. Every year you wait past 66, it's another 8% roughly that it will increase. So another four years, that's another 30% on top of of your amount. So that's not insignificant. And um, if you have one spouse that is a high earner, 
and one that is a low earner, it can can provide some long-term security to the to the spouse if you passed away. If the man, if the gentleman made more than the spouse, um, then it can give you some longe- longevity protection. Yeah, I think that's a great decision to make when you're kind of a year or two out from 66. You know, say you've already delayed from 62 to 66, so you're going to draw it. You might draw it full full Social Security. I think your health is a big factor in that. You know, how healthy are you? Do you plan to have a very active retirement past age 66? If so, you know, maybe maybe delaying and enjoying that additional income later is worth it. Um, but having said that, if you're if you're feeling the clock ticking to go and, and knock out your bucket list earlier and you need the extra income to do it now, then start Social Security at 66. Right. But also, I mean, there is the factor of the uh, d- the spouse. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're married, then this, the surviving spouse gets the higher of the two Social Security numbers. That's right. So you really have to look at two life expectancies to figure out whether or not it makes sense to lay Social Security beyond 66. So, you know, that's a great question. It's, it's a lot more complicated than kind of meets the eye. Um, so if we can help you with that question, give us a call because it is a very important question. There aren't really any do-overs with that. Yeah, that's right. Once you so, start it, it's done. Once it's done, once you start it, it's done. Particularly after a year, you got a year to pay it back in if mm-hmm. you want to make your changes. So, great question. Okay, and that leads up to our final topic here, and that is the six tips to a better career. Um, you know, John. I mean, a lot of people change jobs um, occasionally, uh, if not frequently. And, you know, every career is a work in progress. And money isn't everything. You know, whether we switch jobs every year or we stay at the same company for decades, you know, we tend to grapple with the results of our career decisions on a daily basis. Some of us do. And that can be overwhelming. So this is an article out of CNBC here recently. And I think it does a good job of painting some of the major decision points, things to consider before you switch jobs and tips to a better career. Um, But people constantly wonder whether they should stick with their job, they should leave it for a new one or switch career paths entirely. Particularly a lot of young people really grapple with those questions. And there's no one-size-fits-all answer to these questions, but here are six things that we need to consider when planning for a career change. And the first one on the list, John, is money isn't everything. Don't base your decision primarily on money. Obviously, it's important. The financial elements of a career move do matter, but they shouldn't be the sole driver to your decision. I mean, in my experience, most people that make a career move solely based on financial reasons, they wind up regretting it down the road. So while we like to assume that each step in our career path will pay more than the previous one, that's not always the case, and we shouldn't rule out taking a step back in pay for the right job opportunity, for the right career opportunity. You know, especially if we're in the process of shifting career fields to head in a a different direction to better align us with our interest. Yeah, that's right. And you shouldn't just look at the current salary, right? You should um, look long-term. What's the the financial potential um, long-term in that uh, change that you're looking at? Where will you likely be four years down the road in that position? What are some of the opportunities for advancement and increases? And, um, you know, really, if you look at it, the best long-term moves um, that, that I ever made, 
personally have have come with a large sh- short term drop in pay. I mean, we had yeah, it's true um, for me too. Yeah, so we had some uh, some personal family personal issues that happened many years ago and took a significant pay pay decrease. But you know, the family uh, opportunity to spend the last you know couple months with family members because they passed away, you can't put a price tag on that. Exactly. So, it's not always about the money and, you know, um, you know, it, you got to look at a lot of other factors when it comes to plotting your career. So don't, don't be afraid to take a step backward in order to take two steps forward down the road. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so that's a good one. Don't base your decision primarily on money. The second tip here is to move towards something, um, but not always from something. Okay. So you want to move towards something that you're trying to attain in your career and not just run away from your current situation. Too often career moves are treated kind of as escape plans. You know, a job you once loved or maybe never loved becomes unbearable, so you desperately look for a way out. Um, But if your current job situation is bad enough, I mean, just about any other job might seem like a great career move. However, this is a dangerous way to run your career. And besides, coworkers and bosses they change you know over time so be patient with the job situation a lot of people are uncomfortable with personal situations and maybe tension in a in an environment that you're in in your current job but those things do change over time so don't let that drive your decision to run to something else i mean while your career should be dedicated uh dictated by a movement towards something you want not away from something you don't want so your current status may need to change, and it's important not to let that cloud your judgment as you plot your next move, or else you'll likely wind up in a similar situation down the road. So rather than jump to the first escape opportunity you find, consider what you actually want more of or less of in your next position and seek out opportunities to provide that long-term goal that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I like that a lot. Um, you got to have a goal in mind and not running from something. Um, the, the next one here on the list, Steve, is, is look for better, not not perfect. You know, it's easy to get frustrated when you're job hunting uh, because you can't find or you don't know exactly what you want. But the root cause of that is often that you're looking for the perfect opportunity. So consider what you actually want more of or less of in that position. There really is no perfect job. So stop looking for that unicorn and instead identify specific characteristics of a job that would be better than your current position and and suddenly a lot more intriguing opportunities will surface so you know if you focus on making a series of career moves that lead to situations um, that are better than the last you'll end up in a good place so there's no there's not a perfect job out there um, That's right. I guess maybe Tom Brady has one um, you know the flake gate yeah I know but he went out and won the Super Bowl so <laughs> That's true. Um, so anyway there you know there's there's going to be good parts and bad parts to every job out there but look at things that'll advance your career something that you're good at and enjoy and you'll get to a good place yeah that's a good point all right next year is pursue what you want when you don't have to have it um when in other words when you don't have to you know um don't make drastic career moves under duress right um when it comes to shifting careers into a new field the the cliche advice is to follow your passion and that advice often confuses and frustrates people who you know don't know their true passions and don't really see how those passions connect to a career 
So here's a different way to think about it. You know, how do you spend your time when you're not working? What's the work that you voluntarily do um, without needing to the lure of money to motivate you to do it? And with that in mind, maybe you consider how that would be could be monetized and translated into a skill that you could get paid for and turn into a career. Um, you know, how does it provide value to others and who does it provide value to? Um, so you might seek career opportunities that can lead you in that direction. Of course, you have to be realistic. Uh, that doesn't always work out, and it's always not feasible to turn up a, a hobby, if you will, or mm -hmm. an interest into a career. But but it's certainly worth exploring. Um, so that's one thing to consider. You know, an example from um, my own life's career as a financial planner and advisor. You know, it is certainly this. I mean, you know, I was a chemical engineer before I got in this business. <clears throat> I'd always been very interested in finances and I followed the stock market and a lot of investments and I helped people with budgeting and financial decisions and then one day I got an offer to come into this business and turn kind of a passion that I had personally into a career and you know I had a great job I was making good money as an engineer but this career what I really wanted to try wholeheartedly and it required a lot of retooling studying additional schooling to get my CFP, my Certified Financial Planner designation. However, I mean, since I had a passion for it, it made that part easy. Mm -hmm. um, but it required a lot of patience and perseverance. In the end, I mean, it turned out to be the best career decision that I've ever made. So, as the cliche goes, if you love your work, then you'll never have to work a day in your life. Yeah. So, that's good. And that's that's, that's kind of where I feel I'm at. So that's a great example. Yeah, and so uh, the next one here on the list is Chase Learning. I mean, he who learns the most succeeds the most. And you did that as you made that transition. You had to retool. So that's what is required sometimes. Right. But, you know, when analyzing the job opportunities, one of the most important things to consider is how much you'll be able to learn from a uh, potential position. If it's um, more important than the money and the benefits and the company culture uh, combined, then it can be a good situation for you. So go after those jobs that'll push you, that'll expand your boundaries, it'll challenge you, allow you to broaden your relationships and your network. I mean, these things that are, will pay off in the future. So besides making your, your work more engaging, the ability to learn a lot on the job really is crucial because no matter what job you're, you, you'll, you'll have, you likely won't be there forever. So look at the skill sets and some of the training opportunities that you'll get as you're making this decision. Yeah, that's right. And when you take a job in which you can learn and expand your horizons, if you will, I mean, you ensure that you're going to generate value for yourself, and that's going to benefit you the rest of your career and the rest of your life. So that's a great tip, chase learning. And the last one here on the list is um, your next career move isn't as risky as it seems. Um, you know, we put a lot of emphasis, us humans do, you know, on our careers, and we often um, can paralyze ourselves when it comes to making decisions about what to do next and whether or not to accept an offer or change careers. But your career isn't life or death. And whatever you decide, you'll probably be fine in the end. I mean, career decisions aren't as risky as they seem at the time because, you know, no matter what we choose to do, even if we make a, a mistake, it doesn't erase everything that you've accomplished at that point. And you can always shift gears and go back to your current career path. You know, our experience, our relationships, our track record, and our expertise doesn't disappear just because we chose to take the wrong job. Careers are fluid. People do change jobs. 
um, on a routine basis on average you know every four or five years you know it's important to remember that even if you make a mistake you can always recover from it and so it's as easy as making your next career move so don't let that paralyze you and uh, that good are advice the tips for better careers and that leads up to our last thing which is the prescription of the week Yes, this has to do with um, long-term care insurance. So the average cost of a nursing home in this area is about six thousand dollars per month, seventy grand per year. Now that's in a, in a nursing a home. Mm -hmm. There's some other options. There's independent living facilities, which are a little less expensive, and there's also in-home care as well. But you might want to consider long-term care insurance. Um, Dave Ramsey, um, you know, believes that age sixty is when you ought to start looking at it. Uh, you know, long-term care insurance, that industry has changed dramatically over the last 10 years. There's less carriers. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a fairly costly product, but it can be very, very instrumental. Um, we have a lot of clients that come in that, that are interested in long-term care because their parents are mm -hmm. going through it and they yeah, don't have it. So um, it's something that you need to look at. It's just another tool that you can have in your financial resources to, to pay some of these very, very large costs. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, long-term care is very, very important. Um, everybody's been affected of that, or will be at some point with a parent or sibling or somebody in their family. So you need to look at long-term care insurance. It, it's not what it used to be. I mean, long-term care insurance today has caps, and, mm -hmm. you know, it is expensive. So you have to kind of look at your whole situation. But it certainly is the right fit for a lot of people, and it does provide the peace of mind that a lot of people are looking for. Right. So for a couple age 60 to get a basic policy, it's probably $2,000 a year for both policies. Okay. okay. So that's gotcha. just it's kind of ballparks. So it can be much more expensive than that. It can be you can get four and $5,000 policies. And that's kind that of a basic coverage. policy that Very provides basic. kind of a limited coverage. It does. Right? Yeah. Right. Yep. Right. So, all right, great prescription of the week. And that brings us to a close for this week's edition of Money MD. Tune in next week for more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us out on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. Or give us a call, Richard M. Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of the week. Go Gamecocks. Go Cox. Material in this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. SmartVestor Pro is for customer service only and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richarding Associates, a registered investment advisor.